Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this opportunity that uh, we've been given to come together to worship thee on this holy Sabbath day. We thank you so much uh, that you have created a Sabbath day so that we can come together and spend in uh, lovely fellowship with like believers and with holy angels from on high, and especially with the Holy Spirit who we pray for now. We pray that the Holy Spirit will come into our hearts and minds, settle upon your people here today on this Holy Sabbath day. May the Holy Spirit lead us into the truth, which the Bible promises that he will do. And we claim that promise, that we will be led to the truth. Uh, May the Holy Spirit soften our hearts to the truth that we may learn and um, that we may be convicted, Lord, that uh, you will forgive us our sins and help us to be overcomers, that we may bring glory to thy name. Father, we lift up those who are on our prayer list, those who are ill. We think of Roland and Susan who are dealing with pain and health issues. Uh, many others who are grieving. Um, fr- uh, friends that we have lost. Lost uh, someone uh, the other day who uh, I met 30 years ago. and Just a sweet, dear lady. And I pray, Lord, that you be very near to her family as they mourn. Uh, Father, please be with our family and all those suffering from the effects of the weather and the flooding in Salem, Indiana, and around the world, really. Uh, And may eyes be lifted heavenward uh, because of these things toward you, that they may be saved. Father, I pray as a people that you forgive us our sins. We claim the blood of Jesus that was shed there on Calvary for us. And I ask humbly, Lord, that you give me the words to speak today. May they be your words, not my own, my own opinions. But may they be always, Lord, the truth, and bring glory to Thee. Uh, I pray this uh, especially in the name of Jesus, for He is so worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen and Amen. Well, friends, it's so good, like I said, to, to be back and to be with you today. I really love the Sabbath day. It, uh, it's a day of rejoicing for me. And I love to be together with those of like faith, those who who worship uh, the true God. And uh, there's such a union between us, isn't there? Always, you just feel at peace and know that you're in a family. You're in God's family. So I welcome you here. Uh, In our last study, as I begin here this morning, um, in our last day together, uh, in this series that uh, I entitled The Sin Issue, we took a look at the effects of influence, you know, and, and, and how influence has an effect upon each one of us, and we found uh, that it can be a two-way street, right? Our surroundings can have a great impact upon us because of its influences, and by influence, it can, it can be very subtle. We may not even know that it's affecting us, but we need to realize and be smart about it and understand that it does have an effect upon us. And we saw how nature, remember, how nature influenced the Savior and how it aided him to withdraw from the, the just torrent and barrage of evil uh, and distractions that were aimed at defeating his walk of holiness because if Jesus failed, we're all gone. We're all dead. It, it, uh, it, we would cease to exist. And so uh, this, the influences of nature and, and Christ's example for us, want an example for us, amen? We also saw that the evil influences that are in the world can be overcome. You know, as in the case of Enoch. You know, by, be, by becoming the friend of God, we can shut out those and we learn how to shut out those influences. And we put ourselves in positions of uh, different surroundings that help us to shut out those influences. And we become closer to God and, and we are the friend of God, like Enoch was. He was the friend of God. You know, but in too many cases, uh, we see how those who wish to walk with God have been overcome by evil influences uh, by being too closely associated with them. And the reason I'm reminding you of what we studied the last time in this series is because of where such influences will lead your heart. And this is what I want to look at with you uh, at this time. You see, you see, friends, with each temptation, uh, with each influence, 
we either have a spiritual victory or a defeat. We will either overcome uh, or be overcome. And we will either have our hearts softened or our hearts will be hardened. And how we use our influence, because each one of us, we, we have an influence. Uh, and how we use it works the same way. We will either draw others toward our Savior or toward the devil. Now, in a previous study, we talked about how we are to react to a church that is in sin, if you, you recall, uh, you know, a church that is in apostasy. And too often I hear those who wish to remain within such a, a fallen church say that they wish to stay within its ranks in order to reach or influence those within uh, to repent you know, and experience a revival and, and, and be you know, turned around from their downward course. And it sounds so compassionate and noble, and, and really it is, you know, but we have seen that we cannot put ourselves within such sinful influences and not be affected by it. In fact, of course, the command by the Savior is to come out from it because He knows this and He has our best interest at heart and He wants to save us from our sins. We're called out of Babylon so we don't partake of her sins and receive of the plagues. And when we associate with sin, what happens is we leave our heart open to hardening and not the softening that we need in order to be like Jesus. As the old saying goes, and you've heard me say it before, and you've probably heard it you know, a number of times, by beholding what happens, we become changed, don't we? And so the more we behold Jesus in the right surroundings and drowned out and, and put barriers up, allow him to, with angels and such, uh, against these evil influences, the more we become like him. Now, I know it can be difficult to separate, you know, uh, from maybe even family, but uh, and that's how we look at it. It's our church family, uh, an assembly that was once our family. But when we, when are we, let me, let me say this correctly, um, and, and in the right spirit, and I humbly say this, friends, when are we as a people going to look upon Christ in the heavenly kingdom as our closest family instead of those who choose to sin and teach it by their example and influence? When are we going to do that? When are we going to get on our knees and say, Lord, I am yours, take me. Change my heart. I want to follow you though the heavens fall. That's what Jesus is waiting for. He's waiting for a people. Are we going to be that people? Oh, I hope and pray. I want to be um, among those people. You know? I mean, I, I, I think of myself, I, do I really think so highly of myself that I can do such a thing and be safe from evil? Can I stay within or should I listen to the Lord and follow what He's saying? Let's follow Jesus. Amen? Notice what Paul says in Romans 2 and verse 5. You know, in talking about becoming hard at heart. But after, and this is Romans 2 verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And that's what happens. You know, when we, we think we know the best course for ourselves, when are we going to let go and let God rule our lives? When are we going to trust Him enough to know He loves us and has our best interest at heart? Let's let Him take control. Because if we don't, we're going to become heart at heart, and we're going to be laying up those treasures against that day of wrath. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'm amazed more and more by this kind of blind loyalty to, to, to those who crucify Jesus afresh uh, each day rather than to call sin as it should be called. And then, we're wooed, you know, and this is what, what, how influence works. We're wooed to join, you know, to join in heaping treasure of wrath against the day of wrath. And uh, I guess, you know, the Bible calls it the mystery of sin and, uh, and self-deception. And, uh, you know, the prophet talks about being self-deceived. And I pray in my prayers not, that I will not be self-deceived. I pray that for those who hear my voice, those who see, and for every one of you, that we won't be self-deceived. You know, Lord, save us from ourselves and from this evil. Amen. Let me share this with you.
It's from Christ, the book Christian Education, page 96. The love of our Heavenly Father in the gift of His only begotten Son to the world is enough to inspire every soul to melt every hard, loveless heart into contrition and tenderness. And yet shall heavenly intelligences see in those for whom Christ died insensibility to His love, hardness of heart, and no response of gratitude and affection to the giver of all good things? Shall affairs of minor importance absorb the whole power of the being, and the love of God meet no return? Shall the sun of righteousness shine in vain? In view of what God has done, could His claims be less upon you? Some humbling words there, some words that, that we need to really contemplate in our hearts and minds. And so I want to talk about this hardness of heart. Uh, and as I was thinking about this, you know, I run into this quite a lot as a, uh, as a pastor and a minister. As I meet people and talk to people. Um, you run into what I call professional uh, debaters. <laughs> you know, it's like that's their profession. And, and so, you know, have you, have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody, you know, maybe they come to you with a, a scripture or maybe a statement from the prophet and, and, and it seems like their whole purpose, their, their sole purpose of, of doing that is to try to trap you and show you how wrong you were uh, with this text of scripture or this quotation, you know. Has that ever happened to any of you? You know, and if it has, what what did you do? What did you do? How did you react? You know, all too often such persons, they're not looking for evidence because they've already made up their mind, haven't they? And even if you give an answer, which it, I've noticed a trend as we get closer and closer to the end of time, more and more people do this. They're in, I, I think we're in a debate uh, culture uh, who can yell the loudest? Nobody listens, or even less listen. And I, I've found this trend, uh, that less and less people are interested in wanting to know what God has to say to them. And so, you know, they're not really looking for evidence. They've already made up their mind. And even if you give an answer, it seldom accomplishes anything, you know, because that's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for, for answers. They're looking to defeat you in a debate. And this is due to a closed or hardened heart. This is the pathway, friends, and, and I'm sounding a warning here. This is the pathway that those good-minded people are treading uh, who choose to stay within a fallen church in order to reach those who are inside. They're heading down a wrong path here because ultimately the Lord says to come out, but they're staying in, so they're being disobedient, and that opens your heart up to hardening. You see... I think the reason that they say these things is, and again, I say this humbly, uh, and from a, a, a heart of love, I think they say these things to appear righteous and ease their own conscience to the real choice they're making, because those who follow the voice of the shepherd, uh, they'll know the doctrine, and they'll never choose such a course. The Savior's call, like I said, is to come out and be ye separate. But these kinds of situations... You know, where, where those who wish to debate um, and confront you, they're nothing new. You know, sad to say. It's been around a very long time. You know, Satan lured Eve into a debate there in the Garden of Eden. You know, he asked, did God really say, you know, this is what he's doing. He was baiting her into a debate. Uh, in Christ's days, uh, you had, like I said, you had professional debaters, and they were called scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Uh, they were professionals at it. But it, see, it, it's nothing new. And the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. And so Jesus dealt with these situations, and he dealt with them very frequently from the professional debaters. And, and friends, if you take a close look at the record in the Gospels, something interesting popped out at me as I looked at a number of these examples. You'll find that most of the time they came to Jesus with, with some of these things, 
that he never responded. He never gave an answer or a reply. It's rather very interesting. It startled me. I thought, well, he always replied. Well, no, he didn't. <laughs> and so we should learn from the Master know when to give an answer and when not to give an answer. Amen? And let the Holy Spirit guide and direct us. And so, <coughs> excuse me, but there are a few times, well, I say more than a few times, uh, recorded in Scripture when Jesus did give an answer in, in such situations. And I want to point you to Matthew 19 and verse 3 because we're talking about the hardness of heart. And this is a, an, a situation where we find it. Matthew 19 and verse 3. <coughs> Excuse me says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, what kind of question is that? I mean, I'm sure that there were some who really were interested. In fact, you know, come to think of it, this question had been debated for a long time among the Jewish leaders and there was a great difference of opinion. So people were confused by it. So I'm sure there were a number of people who were interested to hear what Jesus had to say about it. You know, One school of thought taught that a man could divorce his wife instantly for anything that he didn't like, period. doesn't matter. And the other school of thought taught that there ought to at least be some big reason, you know, before a man could divorce his wife. And so this was a popular... Uh, uh, controversy. This was a popular debate question among the professional debaters. Could you divorce your wife for any reason, or could you not? And so they came to Jesus with this, and uh, let's go on in Matthew 19 and look at verse 4. Let's see what Jesus says. And he answered and he said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be made one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So, you know, Jesus is saying a human being is not to separate something that God has joined. Now the Jewish leaders thought that they had Jesus trapped, you see. Because they knew all about Deuteronomy 24 and what Moses had to say all about the subject. And they thought they were going to trap Jesus here with their debating skills. But let's continue. Let's look at verse 7 here in Matthew 19. So they say to him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? See, they thought, they thought oh, we got him snared now. But notice his reply. Verse 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So Jesus tells us something very important about why we sometimes do the things that we do and it's a, it's a key to discovering what needs to change about us and how we can be changed. So why were they allowed under the Old Covenant to divorce their wife? What was it that Jesus said? Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your hearts. That's what he said. It's because of the hardness of your hearts. They were allowed to divorce their wife because of their hardness of heart. And in case you're, you're unaware of this, and you think about this, no person is going to be in the kingdom of God who has a hardness of heart. That is the reality. If I am hard-hearted, something has to happen to my heart uh, before Jesus returns, or I cannot go to heaven to be with him. And friends, I want you to be in heaven. And, and I want to be in heaven. I want to be with Jesus. Uh, our heart must be in the right condition for this to happen. So if you want to go to heaven, we must gain victory here because there will be no hard-hearted people there. 
Is that safe to say? Notice this. This is from a Review and Herald article, September 20th, 1892. We read, The spirit that is cherished in the home is the spirit that will manif be manifested in the church. Now, we've talked about who and what the church is and the home and the church and the home and, and that those uh, subjects and themes. So, some of us may not be surprised by this, but this is a pretty interesting statement, isn't it? The spirit that is cherished in the home is the spirit that will be manifested in the church. Now, thinking about that, why do people get divorced? Well, mainly because they don't get along. Now, they may not get along for a number of different reasons, but they just don't get along. And when we know how to get along at home, we will know how to get along in the church, right? Because it's a ripple effect. What, what happens in the home ripples out and goes everywhere. It goes out into the church, goes into our neighborhood, goes everywhere. And so, when we learn to get along in our homes, it, it will find itself in the church. And God knows our need. He knows our need in the home. Notice what he said before Jesus comes back. He said something in Malachi 4. He said something to Malachi. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to who? To the children. And the heart of the children to their fathers. Where, where, where's the father and the children at? That's in the home, isn't it? And he says, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So God is going to do a marvelous work within our homes that will not only be seen in our homes, but will be seen in the church as well. Frankly, Adam and Eve were the first church. That family was the first church on earth. And so our families that are Christian families dedicated to Jesus are actually a home church. But I'm getting sidetracked here. That's a whole other topic that I could go on and on about, but... But I want you to notice that there will be a change of heart in the family circle. And that change will ripple out to the church and to the world. Here's another one from Bible Training School, April 1st, 1906. Oh, how my heart trembles for us all. That's something. Now, the prophet says that their heart's trembling and trembling for us. She says, unless the hard-heartedness is melted away by the grace of Jesus Christ, we shall never know what heaven is. She says, I'm pained beyond measure. Can you imagine that? She's pained beyond measure when I see and feel the hard-hearted methods of dealing with the Lord's heritage. I feel so ashamed in behalf of Christ as I see how little respect and reverence are shown towards the purchase of His blood. And of course, that was um, talking. she was talking about leadership there and how uh, a number of the leaders were reacting towards members of the church and, uh, boy, we see a parallel today, don't we? And so, friends, as you look at yourself, and that's what we do. We look at ourselves in comparison to Jesus. And But if we look at ourselves in comparison to Jesus and we see a hard heart, I want to tell you not to despair. <laughs> Don't despair, for the Lord's given us a precious promise that we need to cling to. Trust and believe. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. Praise God. He can take our heart, stony heart, and He can change it. He'll give us a new one. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Praise God Almighty that He loves us so much, friends. Praise Him. Now, I guess before I get going a little bit uh, further here, let's find out what is meant by hardness of heart. Maybe some people are confused a little bit by that. You know, we just saw here in Ezekiel that God's going to take uh, a the stony heart out of us and give us a heart of flesh. What is a, a stony heart? Well, a heart of stone is a heart that, well, like a stone, is hard. <laughs> well, Pastor Joe, what does that mean? Right? Well, it means it cannot feel or show righteous love. It, it, it can't do that. It's not tender. It's hard. 
But the Lord says that if we are willing, friends, He's going to take that hard heart out of us and put a heart in us of flesh that will feel and show righteous love. We will have a new heart. And we all need to have it or we're not going to be going to heaven. We're not going to be with Jesus for eternity. And so the question is, how and why is there hardness of heart? What happens here? And I'll tell you, it's been a problem with the human race for thousands of years. They had the they definitely had the problem in the time of Moses. You know, Jesus told them that God allowed them to divorce their wives because of the hardness of their heart, right? And it wasn't because he wanted them to do it. He wanted them to divorce. According to Malachi 2, verse 16, um, God hates divorce. But God does not force his will upon anyone, does he? He uses other methods to reach our hearts and our minds. And uh, so, you know, when you were young, uh, think about this. When you were young, did your parents allow you to do something that you wanted, uh, though they disagreed with it? Mine did, and I can tell you stories. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But let me tell you, I learned a lesson in each one of them. Sometimes God does the same thing, you see, in an effort to open our eyes to His love and His righteousness. And one of the primary reasons we become hard-hearted, friends, is because that's the way we grew up. And we're steeped in family traditions and behaviors, you see. As parents, those who have children, and our children are grown, they're out of our household, so we don't have, you know, we can give them advice, but uh, they, they're not under our uh, control anymore, or our, you know, our rules, or anything like that, but... As parents, we have a tremendous obligation toward our children so that they don't grow up in such a way. If a parent is hard-hearted, the child will be hard-hearted to some degree or even maybe even in a greater degree. And we see it in our culture, at least in this country today. Well, actually, you see it all around the world, don't you? You know, We see how the children are behaving today that gives us an indication of what their family life was like and also some insight into how they were parented. Not always, but usually. You know, read this here with me. Those in the room. This is from Review and Herald. This was an article entitled The Spirit of Christ, June 22, 1886. Quote, We must let Christ into our hearts and homes if we would walk in the light. Home should be made all that the name implies. It should be a little heaven upon the earth, a place where the affections are cultivated instead of being studiously repressed. Notice she says, Our happiness depends upon this cultivation of love, sympathy, and polite courtesy to one another. What softens a heart? We have to practice. We have to cultivate love, sympathy, and polite courtesy to one another. <clears throat> sympathy is entering into the feelings of another person. You know, when my wife is happy, I'm happy. That's the old saying, if mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> is that the saying? But if my wife's happy, I'm happy. If I discover that my wife is sad, I feel some sadness coming into my heart. Isn't that true? I think we all experience that. We're created that way. Now notice, the article continues on. She says, the reason why there are so many hard-hearted men and women in our world is because true affection has been regarded as weakness and has been discouraged and repressed. You know, my dad was raised in a generation, and we were somewhat, uh, my brothers and I somewhat too, that men don't show emotion. Men don't cry when they're sad. Men don't do these things. That's what women folk do. But here, we find that that's not true. But we had this world, this culture, that discouraged these things. And it made men hard-hearted. And so, if you don't want your child to grow up with hardness of heart, every day there should be an expression of affection. Okay? Don't let the devil tell you there's anything weak about it, or any reason that you shouldn't do it. Your children should hear much more affection than they hear of reproof. And so before you reprove one of your children, ask yourself how many times you've expressed affection to them that day. You know, affection is to be expressed in actions. 
Not just words, but in actions. We need to acknowledge when others do something nice for us. Have you noticed, friends, because I tell you I've noticed, have you noticed that the words please and thank you aren't used much anymore? It's becoming more rare. In fact, I'll say thank you uh, to someone and they look at me with, you know, their, their head tilted like, okay, whatever. You know, <laughs> like I was speaking some foreign language. You know, but I've noticed that it's not used much anymore. So try to, to cultivate a habit of doing something nice for a member of your family or someone else each day. You know, it's, it's really strange. I saw there was a man who, I, I saw a video, uh, um, maybe it was on YouTube or something, I don't remember where I saw that, but uh, he wanted to, he wanted to just be kind, do kind acts to people. So he goes out into the city and he asks people to do something for them. What would you like me to do? And they shied away because they didn't trust him. You see where our society is? He just wanted to share some kindness. And eventually he was able to do it. But he had this goal of he wanted to spread kindness around and he found that it's, it's very hard to do today because people won't accept your kindness. But we need to try to cultivate that, don't we? So we need to cultivate a habit of doing something nice for someone. Um, uh, you know, by being affectionate and kind, we receive many more blessings than we give. We see that in the life of Jesus and we, we experience it if we, if we put it into practice. Are members of your family doing nice things for each other and expressing affection? You know, we need to honestly look at our families and think about that. Hmm. And if they're not, I'm going to tell you, your children may be growing up hard-hearted, and that's a real tragedy. You know, and, and this is, you know, and they're so distracted today. You know, we've got the cell phones and the social media and everything, and a lot of times you sit in the same room with all your children, and nobody's looking at each other. They're all looking down. There's no discussions, because everyone's in their own little uh, bubble, even though physically we're all together. Now, do you not think that the devil had something to do with that kind of a plan? Well, sure, technology can be used to spread the gospel. And we use technology the best of our ability to do just that. But look at some of the side effects of, uh, of what's happening. You know, because we do have an enemy. We have an enemy called Satan who's going to use it to, to thwart the work of God. And the, the home life especially. He wants to disrupt families because he knows the effect that a family has on the church and the spreading of the gospel. So, you know, ask the Lord to help you to, to never let another day go by without expressing affection to the people in your family several times a day. It, it needs to be cultivated. Let's go back to that same article. Notice what she says as we continue. She says, The better part of the nature of those of this class was perverted and dwarfed in childhood. See, we're where it happens, where it starts. And unless rays of divine light can melt away their coldness and hard-hearted selfishness, the happiness of such is buried forever. That is so sad, friends. That is so sad. If we would have tender hearts, such as Jesus had when he was upon the earth, and sanctified sympathy, such as the angels have for sinful mortals, that's us, they have a sanctified sympathy for us, we must cultivate the sympathies of childhood, which are simplicity itself. Then we shall be refined, elevated, and directed by heavenly principles. That's wonderful counsel. You know, children, you think about it, they're tender in heart. Our granddaughter, she can be the sweetest, most tender-hearted, loving little person that you ever meet. You know? What happens to us when we grow up? You know? Well, what does happen? If there's no affections in the family and that's not cultivated, that love and tenderness and kindness, we grow up hard-hearted. Notice this from the Adventist Home, page 319. In the home, the foundation is laid for the prosperity of the church. The influences that rule in the home life are carried into the church life. Therefore, church duties should first begin where? In the home. So if you want to know how sin prevailed in a fallen church, just take a look at the home life of its members and you'll find hardness of heart lives there in the home life. 
There's an example in the Bible uh, of a man who grew up tender-hearted, but as an adult he became hard-hearted. And his name was Solomon. Solomon didn't grow up in an ideal home. His father had killed Uriah, remember, the Hittite, in order to marry his mother. And after that time, what had happened to David's home? Well, he lost moral influence with his family, and especially his children. He couldn't talk to his children about sin and tell them not to do it because they could immediately say, well, Dad, why'd you do it? Isn't that true? Many of you experience that? Well, there's a way to, to work through that. But David didn't do that. Now, there were a lot of things that David would have liked to have said and done, but he didn't, see? And this is one of the reasons, if you're a parent, that it's necessary to avoid sin. Okay, Young people, and maybe you've experienced this before, but young people, they, they can spot a double standard pretty quick, quicker than most adults do. But Solomon, he was tender-hearted when he first became the king of Israel, but he eventually became a hard-hearted tyrant. And that's where it leads. You know, one little step in the hardening of your heart, and another step, another step, and pretty soon you're a tyrant. Notice this from General Conference Bulletin, February 25, 1895. He imperiled, speaking of Solomon, he imperiled his soul's interest by the formation of friendships with the Lord's enemies. What did he do? He made friendship with the Lord's enemies. And she says, what carefulness should be exercised in the formation of friendship? And this principle doesn't, don't misunderstand me. And don't misunderstand what she's saying here. This principle doesn't forbid all association with unbelievers, but only such association as would tend to diminish our love for God or lead us to deviate from righteous living. We're not to shun our relatives or shun friends, uh, but we are to associate with them as a living example of Christ. And our goal should be to win them to Jesus by our association. And so the decisive question is, does the Christian choose to associate with the unbeliever because of a fondness for the ways of the world? Or because of a sincere desire to be a blessing to the unbeliever and to win them to Christ? We need to ask ourselves those questions. Why is this person my friend? What's the goal of this? Is it because I'm getting something from them? Or is it because I, I truly love them and am compassionate towards them and I want them to know Christ? Because, friends, if it's not that, you better check yourself. A second question, and one no less important uh, to us as Christians, is whose influence is likely to prevail in such an association? That of Christ or that of the evil one? Now, we've already studied about that. You know, and we know that the vast majority of times it's the evil one who, who prevails. We're not to lower the standard of God to meet people where, you know, to their standard and think we're going to woo them and win them to Christ. So if you form close friendships with people of this world who are unconverted, it can cause you to become hard and hard, and it can destroy your very capacity for happiness. Let me tell you that. Happiness here, and then you won't have eternal life. You know, sin is seductive. And those who enjoy it will draw you away from the Lord and a hardened heart will be the result. And we need to be very, very careful. What is it that, that, that saves us from that? Well, John said in 12.32, Jesus said actually in John 12.32, He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So we must keep looking up to Jesus and not take our eyes off of Him for the temporary pleasures of sin uh, with so-called friends. I mean, just think of the, the hard lesson the prodigal son learned, right? He lost his inheritance and found out that his associates were not really his friends at all. Don't be deceived. If you're associating with someone who's unconverted and, and they like your company, it's not because you're a Christian. I guarantee you that. It's for some other reason, some other selfish reason. Think about that. Notice this, General Conference Bulletin, February 25, 1895. The same, from the same bulletin we read just a moment ago. 
What carefulness should be exercised in the formation of friendship? Companionship with the world will surely lower the standard of religious principle. Solomon's heathen wives turned away his heart from God. What kind of wives were they? Were they converted? No, they were heathen. See what kind of situation he placed his, his soul into? He surrounded himself with people who were unbelievers in the true God. Notice it says, His finer sensibilities, his finer sensibilities were blunted and he became hard-hearted for he lost his sympathy for man and his love to God. His conscience was seared and his rule became tyranny. Sensibility means you're, you're sensitive to something, right? Uh, you know, uh, enjoying music depends on the sensitivity of the ears. Or enjoying food depends on the sensitivity of the tongue. All pleasure uh, depends on sensitivity. And when you lose sensitivity, you lose the capacity for pleasure and happiness. And that's one of the terrible things about sin and its ability to harden the heart. Solomon's capacity for pleasure was actually decreased because of his associating with unbelievers and being married to them. So whenever you engage in sin, your capacity, your capacity for pleasure and happiness is decreased in reality. Now Satan uh, deceives us and we think, oh, by sinning we're more happy than we ever could be. That's a lie. Why trust Satan? You know, he's not trustworthy. But it's just something that happens. It's, it's almost like a law. You, you break a commandment, you're not going to be happy. Your happiness is going to decrease. And it's not because God made it some arbitrary decree. You know, you're doing it yourself by your choices. And you're hardening your heart and you're decreasing your capacity for happiness yourself. And so when Solomon's finer sensibilities were blunted, he lost his sympathy for men and his love for God, she said. And the result was what? His conscience was seared and his rule became tyranny. And so we will become hard-hearted by forming close friendships with worldly people over the closeness we should cultivate with those in the household of faith. If we're choosing those who are unconverted as our friends and we tend to want to be with them more than we do people that are in the household of faith, we need to step back and take a close look at ourselves. What's really motivating us? There's a spiritual issue there. There's something in our heart that needs to be corrected by God. A third way to hardness of heart is our failure to forgive. Have you ever met somebody who's holding a grudge? I'm sure we all have. Maybe somebody really did something bad or they said something bad you know, against them. And maybe it was a long time ago, but they, they still hold a grudge. I used to work for a, a land developer and when he went bankrupt and he cut people loose and he did some things that were not nice to those who had dedicated 40 years or more uh, to, to his service and working for him. And uh, that there was one particular lady that, that just, she held a grudge against him and probably, I mean, still does to this day. And that people do that. Um, but I'll tell you, holding a grudge has a terrible effect on your heart. It leads to bitterness. It doesn't lead to happiness. And the Bible's very clear in what it says about forgiveness. God offers to forgive us our trespasses, and we should be more than willing to do the same with others, right? Notice this, Review and Herald, uh, December 26, 1882. We must forgive those who trespass against us if we would obtain pardon and grace when we approach the mercy seat. Mercy and love must be cherished by all who would be followers of Jesus. When Peter asked, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I, sh and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus replied, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. He then enforced the duty of forgiveness by the parable of the two debtors. One was forgiven a debt of ten thousand talents and then refused to show mercy to his fellow servant who owed him a hundred pence. The pardon granted to that hard-hearted servant was revoked and he was de delivered to the tormentors. Our Lord makes the application of the parable in these impressive words. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, 
If ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And so if we don't have the spirit of forgiveness, we are hardening our hearts. And the worse that is said or done to you, the more necessary it is for you to forgive. And let me tell you this. It takes a supernatural power, friends, placed within your heart in order for you to forgive, and that power comes from the Holy Spirit. Because the natural heart does not easily choose to forgive. But a heart that has been melted and converted by the Holy Spirit has the capacity for compassion and mercy. And if you don't forgive and you keep holding that you know, in, your heart is going to get hard and that destroys your happiness and your salvation. And so far, so far we've seen three ways for the hardness of heart. One uh, was by not being trained as children to be kind and sympathetic and affectionate. Uh, two, uh, by forming close friendships with worldly unconverted people. And three, by refusing to forgive someone who's wronged us and holding a grudge against them. A fourth way uh, for the hardness of heart is to dwell on the faults of others. And this is very dangerous and all too prevalent, isn't it, in our families and churches? And so, beloved, I mean, if you want, and I said this last week, too, <laughs> if you want to find fault in someone, you're going to find fault. Because we all uh, have faults. And, and this is what Jesus came to correct, though, right? We, he came to show us what true love is and how we can have it. We have it by keeping our eyes heavenward, and not downward upon those around us. And when you take your eyes off Jesus, they will naturally come down, and then you'll be looking at the faults of others because, you know, then you can tell yourself, well, I'm better than them because look at what they do, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, leads, it leads us to, to hardening our heart and away from, from Christ. But we need to be, keep looking up, don't we? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 uh, to 7. Notice what Paul says. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Um, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And let me tell you something, that would be learning some truth about yourself. Think about that for a moment. Verse 7. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now the word charity is not, in the English translation here, it's, it, it's not comprehensive enough to indicate the, 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 the wide sweep of interest in the well-being of others that is contained in the original word. And the original word here is agape. Uh, the word love is better than charity, but that must be understood in the light of all that's said in this chapter concerning it, see? And, and so this love, this agape, must not be confused with that which is sometimes called love, which, you know, a quality composed um, um, largely of, you know, feelings and emotions that has their center in self, in the desires of self. It's, it's the opposite of selfishness. Agape centers the interest and concern in others and leads to an appropriate action towards them and not self, you see. So Paul says that love does not keep track of or take account of error. It does not continue to dwell on the sins or errors of others. And so every one of us, if we look around, like I said, we know people, even in our own families, that have faults. We have faults. But if we dwell on them, we're going to become hard-hearted. Another review and Herald article, August 18, 1885. Let us remember that others' faults and defects are very poor food. <laughs> Christ said, If ye shall eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye shall have eternal life. We must grow up into Christ. We must be partakers of His divine nature. Just as the branch is joined to the vine and partakes of the nature of the vine, so we must be daily receiving nourishment from the true vine, our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be in Christ and He in us. Then the defects will disappear from our characters. The closer we live to Jesus, the more we shall reflect in words and character His image. And that's our goal, isn't it, friends? That's God's goal for us. 
And the farther we separate from God, the farther we live away from the light of, of life and as the sure result become perverse, dictatorial, hard-hearted. <clears throat> so, if I'm keeping my eye on Jesus, focusing on Him, studying Him, joining to Him, the defects of my character are going to be removed by Him. But if I'm focusing on somebody else's defects of character, guess what? My defects will stay right where they are. And not only that, I'm going to get a hardened heart. You know, you don't need to remember every defect or fault of somebody else. It does no good for you. And we are allowed to forget things. Do you know that? <laughs> we talk about, you know, as you get older, you forget things. I'm not talking about that. Those kinds of things, they, they, those may be important things. But we're allowed to forget things. You know, Joseph called the name of his firstborn, uh, firstborn son Manasseh. You know what Manasseh means? Manasseh means God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. You don't have to remember for the rest of your life some defect, some problem or something said to you that wasn't nice. You can forget it. You can put it away from you. I, I do that and I find out I'm, I'm happier because of it. <laughs> but as we get our eyes focused on Jesus and the loveliness of His character, our hearts will become tender and subdued, and we will become meek. And such words won't, they'll, they'll bounce off of us. They, they won't affect us. Because we may, you know, maybe there's truth to it, maybe not. But we don't have to let that thrive within us. We can let Jesus take those away. Failing to help someone who's in error, or someone who's erring, is a fifth way uh, to the hardness of heart. Let's look at Luke 10. Verses 30 to 33. I need to move along here. Luke 10, verses 30 to 33. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. <clears throat> now who's a priest? He's supposed to be a representative of God, right? It says, And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Boy, what a contrast, huh? Notice this, Review and Herald, January 15, 1895. Shall anyone who professes to love God and to love the truth be cold, unsympathetic, and hard-hearted toward those who stumble, toward those who err and fail to give them a helping hand when they need help? By their neglect of the erring, by their unsympathetic words and indifferent deportment, some show themselves to be of that class that pass by on the other side. Who are the class who pass by on the other side? Do you know that the story of the, the Good Samaritan is a true story? I mean, it actually happened just the way it was related by Jesus. The hard-hearted people passed by on the other side. The tender-hearted person stopped and helped him. And so if you pass by on the other side, I mean, that's bad enough. But some people just about curse when they're passing by on the other side. From the same article, she says, some pour out words of gall and bitterness and censure in reproach of the erring, and it is like pouring vitriol into an open wound instead of pouring in the healing oil. Have you ever run into somebody like that? Well, I have. Now, I'm not going to speak for you, ever, but I make mistakes. There are people all around that make mistakes. And what do you do about it? Are you trying to help them get to heaven? Or are you pouring in some gall by severe and crit being critical with them? Something we need to think about. I mean, have you ever been... <laughs> this has happened. Ha have you ever been in trouble because, let's say, you made a mistake? I mean, I mean, I have, right? And has someone said to you after you've made a mistake, well, it was your own fault. Have you ever had that kind of, you know... <laughs> thrown at you? Well, that really doesn't help you much, does it? 
I mean, like I said, that, that might be completely true. But some words are true, friends, that are not Christ-like. Because that kind of speech comes from a hard heart. Sometimes people that have been given Bible studies come to church and they become discouraged because they feel that they're, they're not as good or nice as the people in church seem to be. Now, why would people think and feel that way? It's because they have a hunger. They're, they're hungry for some words of encouragement, some words of compassion, some tender-hearted words. Every one of us needs to be encouraging one another. Amen? Hebrews 3 and verse 13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Review and Herald, August 20, 1895. Instead of lifting up the finger, instead of speaking vanity, instead of reproving and condemning and taking away the last ray of hope that the Son of Righteousness sheds into their hearts, let your words fall as healing balm upon the bruised soul. And there are bruised souls all around us, friends. And if you do not recognize this, it's because maybe you're hard-hearted. But there are bruised souls all around us. Concerning Jesus, Isaiah 42 and verse 3 says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. You ever wonder what that meant? Well, what are the bruised reed and the smoking flax? Well, a bruised reed, friends, is a human soul that's been hurt. Smoking flax is like a wick, uh, uh, a wick that's, that's about to go out. So it's a, it's a person who has almost given up. And Jesus was so tender-hearted, He reached out to those people and always gave a word of encouragement to them. They found out that they could make it with Jesus. Here's someone who's compassionate. Here's someone who actually does care for me. Someone who encourages me and wants to help. Review and Herald, August 20, 1895. Be not like desolating hail that beats down and destroys the tender hope springing up in the heart. Leave not the hungry, starving soul in his helplessness to perish because you fail to speak words of tenderness and encouragement. See, friends, a hardened heart cannot speak tender words because its heart is hard. You have to have a tender heart to speak tender words. And as you practice speaking tender words to people, your heart will be tenderized. <laughs> I can say it that way. A sixth reason that we can become hard-hearted is because of selfishness. And that really is frequently a reason for divorce. We start out talking about divorce. People say, well, he or she doesn't make me happy. Right? Selfishness. A tender-hearted person asks, what can I do to make him or her happy? And we are so hard-hearted because of our selfishness, friends. From the Review and Herald, May 14, 1895. Those who are unfeeling and hard-hearted do greater harm to themselves than do to others than they do to others for they deceive themselves by their own spirit and course selfishness leads the one who exaggerates every little offense and attaches great importance to that which is said of himself which leads him to attribute guilt to to one who is ignorant of having done wrong has anybody ever experienced that Selfishness works in the unsanctified heart and leads men to depreciate those who do not highly esteem them and show them the honor which they think is their due. I think we get the picture of that about selfishness. Let's move on here. Ooh, I'm running out of time. I appreciate you hanging in there with me. The Lord Himself puts His finger on the seventh reason. It's found in Revelation 2, verses 2 to 7. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. 
Remember, therefore, from whence you are, are fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And we want to eat of that tree of life, don't we, friends? But I want you to know that this church that he's speaking of, they're not heretics. They're not her heretical. They've not accepted the new theology of the Nicolaitans. They still teach the apostles' doctrines. But correct doctrines and theology are not enough, you see. When you lose your first love, this is what Jesus is saying, you are in the process of becoming hard-hearted. And Jesus here, he likens it to a moral fall. He says, remember from where you have fallen, you have lost your first love. There's nothing like the love of God to make the heart tender, you see. And when we lose that first love, the heart is starting to become cold and hard. So we need to get back to our first love. An eighth way to hardness of heart is to have a desire and ambition for power. Kingly power. There's a story in the Bible about a man who became exceedingly hard-hearted because of his ambition and his desire to show his arbitrary power. It's the story of the un unjust judge in, in Luke 18. I preached about that one time. The widow came and said, remember, avenge me of my adversary. And, and he wouldn't do it. Now, why wouldn't he do it? Well, his desire for arbitrary power and ambition led him to be hard-hearted towards the needs of others because self was his God. He finally gave her a judgment to avoid tarnishing his reputation. Number nine is really an important one, even though it's, it's the last one we're going to consider here because I'm running out of time. Appreciate your patience. But people become hard-hearted when they resist evidence and despise messages of warning that God gives them. Ellen White gave a special testimony uh, to those in the Review and Herald office one time. Notice what she said. It's in 1888 Materials, page 1452. She said, Some of you have become hard-hearted. You have resisted evidence and have despised the messages of warning of light and truth which the Lord has sent you by the Holy Spirit because He loves you and is loath to give you up. And so as you resist the messages of truth and warning that God gives you, your heart becomes hard. Here's a quote from A Call to Stand Apart, page 23. It is by resisting the Spirit that men become inattentive to or neglectful of God's Word. They are themselves responsible for the hardness of heart that prevents the good seed from taking root and for the evil growths that check its development. Now, when you think about the sin issue, and specifically the condition of a, a church that is in unrepentant sin, and you look at all these courses to a hardness of heart, do you not recognize these traits within its assembly? And usually, maybe especially, I'd say probably especially so, in its leadership. A fallen church is unrepentant, in unrepentant sin, it, it, is, uh, it lacks in kindness, Sympathy and affection. It has formed close friendships with the world. It really holds a grudge against those who are the true worshipers of Jehovah that point out sin, right? It has a cold attitude, always finds fault in others, and basks in self-righteousness, doesn't it? It professes to love truth, but attaches itself to error and passes by those who are really in need to hear present truth so they can be saved. It is self-interested, ambitious for power, deaf to the warnings concerning its true condition. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm talking about a fallen, unrepentant church that does nothing about open sin. The church militant will have some of these things in here because it has tares. Okay? Not hypocrites, but you'll find some of these traits within. So don't, I hope I don't confuse anybody by that. But you can see it. You look at these traits, you can see it. Acts of the Apostles, page 430. Among many of the professing followers of Christ, there is the same pride, formalism, and selfishness, the same spirit of oppression that held so large a place in the Jewish heart. 
In the future, men claiming to be Christ's representatives will take a course similar to that followed by the priests and rulers in their treatment of Christ and the apostles. Do we not see that today, friends? We're going to see even worse. In the great crisis through which they are soon to pass, the faithful servants of God will encounter the same hardness of heart, the same cruel determination, the same unyielding hatred. Beloved, we as God's people have to become tender-hearted like Jesus is. The world must see a decided difference between the professed people of God and those who truly follow God, those who walk the walk of faith. The world must see that we are tender-hearted due to what Jesus has done for us in overcoming sin. And those who say that we cannot but sin, which Jesus called you know, the Nicolaitans will become more and more hard-hearted until their conscience is seared against any hope of the Holy Spirit's influence and they will be lost for eternity. They will be the ones who, who will partake of the plagues along with the beast and his image. I want to tell you, friends, everybody in heaven is tender-hearted and we have to become that way if we're going there. And I want to go there. Don't you? Do you want to be tender-hearted? I want to be. So let's let Jesus take our hearts of stone and change them to hearts of flesh to be more like His. And then we will endure the hardness from others and be ready for His return. I leave you with this scripture. Think about this scripture. And this is what Paul said to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3. He said, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's what, uh, what uh, Revelation 14 says. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who have a steadfast endurance. So let's endure the hardness of others. That's what Jesus did. Let's do it as good soldiers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so very, very much for uh, being with us here today, this holy Sabbath day, just as you promised you would be. We're very thankful that uh, you sent your Holy Spirit to abide with us and holy angels and that uh, you taught us from your Holy Word. Father, we pray especially that our hearts will be changed from uh, hardness to a heart of flesh. We pray that you will give us a new heart as you've promised. Uh, we want new hearts. Help us to cultivate love and sympathy and affection in our homes and in the church and to our neighbors and throughout the world. Remembering that Jesus said, they will know that we are disciples because we have love one for another. We have hearts of flesh. We, we are tender-hearted. We do not have hearts of stone. Please help us, Lord, to be faithful to this call so that we may be found faithful and ready to go home with you when you return. Continue to be with us this Sabbath day. Bless us as you promised, not because we're worthy, but Jesus is, and we pray in his name.